0: I call it ice and I call it slabs of ice and I know everybody sort of has an image of what ice is. But when you see it, this doesn't look like the sort of thing that can melt. It looks like enormous mountains.
1: This is journalist and author David W. Brown.
0: The difference being these mountains are moving and nothing in human evolution ever prepared you to see moving mountains.
1: The moving mountains David's talking about are icebergs in Western Antarctica. He's one of the very few human beings in the world to have seen them in person.
0: When we picture icebergs, we picture diamonds jutting from the sea, but that's not at all what it looks like. These things were cinder block gray and jagged and rugged. You could climb up the sides of them.
1: In 2022, David managed to nab a seat on a research expedition to Thwaites Glacier in the Antarctic. He wrote about Thwaites and the sea ice around it for The New Yorker.
0: It was like a labyrinth. We were surrounded by slabs of ice 100 feet high, some relatively small, say the size of a parking lot, and some enormous, the size of Rhode Island.
1: The Thwaites Glacier is massive, something like 74,000 square miles in area. It's also incredibly remote. To get there, David flies from his hometown of New Orleans all the way to New Zealand, then boards a giant red icebreaker boat that's about the length of a football field. From New Zealand... The icebreaker, which is called the RV Rhone, heads southwest to Antarctica through cold, miserable weather and a maze of skyscraper-sized ice mounds. The RV Rhone comes to a halt in the Amundsen Sea. The sea ice is so thick here, they can't get any closer to Thwaites by boat.
0: It's very difficult to get there by boat because Antarctica doesn't want you there. It's the enormous amounts of sea ice. And for most of the time that we were there, in fact, We weren't able to get to the places we wanted to get to, and the reason being the ice simply would not allow it.
1: So they have to take a small helicopter to reach the edge of Thwaites. It's a bumpy, hour-long ride in the air. Once he finally sets foot on the glacier, David recalls being surrounded by nothingness.
0: When you're standing on the ice, that fine layer of snow blows along about a foot off the ground, and it has this ghostly appearance. It feels like you're in the afterlife, almost. It's quite magnificent.
1: Though you might not guess it at first, there is plenty of life here. You just have to look down.
0: So on top of the ice is paper white, but beneath the ice, there are these enormous webs of slime. That's just algae growing down there that, that fish feed on, and penguins feed on the fish, and the seals eat the penguins, and so on and so forth. It's a teeming ecosystem. It does speak to the majesty of nature that Not only can things live down there, but that they can thrive.
1: For a few fairly scary reasons, Thwaites is maybe the most famous glacier on Earth. And to get a sense of why, you should also know its nickname, the Doomsday Glacier.
0: So the way scientists have described it to me is that Thwaites Glacier is is a lot like a, a cork in a wine bottle that's set on its side. Thwaites is very susceptible to something called marine ice shelf instability, in which the ocean erodes it from below. And in eroding it, the ice sheet itself contributes to its own collapse.
1: Picture that bottle of wine on its side. The cork is holding the wine in the bottle, but if the cork gives way, the wine is going to flow out. If Thwaites is the cork and the cork decays, in this case because the glacier is melting from warm ocean water below, there's a lot of water that was once solid that is going to end up in the ocean. And the collapse has already begun.
2: The Thwaites Glacier is one of the largest in Antarctica and it is melting at an alarming rate. The Doomsday Glacier is on the edge of collapsing. and Some scientists are thinking that it could run out, uh, run out of control I should say, and raise sea levels by two feet over the next 100 years.
1: One reason Thwaites is called the Doomsday Glacier is because it's retreating faster than any other glacier in Antarctica.
0: Once Thwaites collapses, the cork in the wine bottle disappears and Huge swaths of the entire West Antarctic ice sheet slide right into the ocean with it. When this happens, and no one knows when it's going to happen, maybe it won't happen. That's the best case scenario. But if it does, we're talking several feet of of sea level rise on coasts around the world.
1: Glaciers are something of a strange phenomenon in the natural world. They exist in these two very different places at the same time. The first is close, but unreal. The thing that sunk the Titanic in that movie, which more than a few people I've met don't actually know is based on a real thing that happened. The thing Martha Stewart scraped some ice off to cool her Arctic cocktail, setting off this weird internet firestorm. The near-mythical thing that most people only see in nature documentaries and those picture essays in National Geographic. Then there's the other side of glaciers. Very real, but very far away. These massive slabs of ice at the tip and toes of the world, most of them almost completely inaccessible unless you're a research scientist or a very rich tourist. And that's one of the reasons it's hard to think of glaciers as a concrete thing. A natural load-bearing beam that, were it to break, or in this case melt, would result in very real and very catastrophic damage to just about every coastal city on Earth. Wiping out farmland, creating an unprecedented surge in refugees, and generally making the whole planet a lot less hospitable to human life.
0: In one person's lifetime, a large piece of the Western Antarctic ice sheet could vanish or could flow into the sea.
1: This is Without, I'm Omar Alakad. On today's episode, glaciers, and what happens if the cork in the wine bottle gives way.
0: Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. The voyage to Thwaites wasn't David W. Brown's first time in Antarctica. In 2019, he took a trip to the eastern part of the continent.
0: So we were in a 1940s, uh, World War II-era plane, and the back door was taken off and we were throwing what looked sort of like torpedoes into cracks in the ice in order to measure the temperature of the water, the salinity of the water, and the depth of the water. I was an Army paratrooper, so leaping from planes and fast roping from helicopters was something that I was experienced with.
1: That's right. Before covering space and climate change as a journalist, David was a paratrooper in the army. Most of the time, journalists don't get invited on expeditions like this. But David was able to sign on as a field researcher.
0: They did not have room for a journalist, someone with a notepad, taking notes and watching other people do things. They did, however, have room for a functional team member.
1: Even though throwing torpedo-shaped probes into cracks of ice is physical and, frankly, pretty dangerous work, David signs up for a second expedition to Antarctica. This time, the destination is Thwaites. The glacier is named after an American geologist, a guy named Frederick Thwaites. It sits near the, I want to say, western, I guess, side of Antarctica? Maybe a better way to think about it is to imagine standing on the very southern tip of Argentina, You're looking out towards the horizon, you get in a rowboat, and you row about 1,500 miles southwest. That's where this glacier is. It's one of those spots where you can zoom all the way out on Google Maps and still have no idea where on Earth you are. It's that remote. But as much as this part of the world conjures images of vast white slabs as far as the eye can see, this place is very alive.
0: It's just a, an ocean of penguins standing around, guarding their nests, flapping their wings, doing penguin things. We were in their house at that point, right? We were the invaders. It was beautiful to witness something like that, to see these whales surfacing and diving back under. We saw big giant seals. I mean, they look like Jabba the Hutt, and they're just sort of laying on slabs of
1: ice. David says anytime they encountered wildlife, he was instructed to keep a low profile.
0: Give them their distance. You don't touch anything. You don't grab a penguin to take it home for your kids. Even if you see lichen growing on a rock, right? Leave it alone. Don't touch
1: it. It's a complex and deeply fragile ecosystem. And it is disappearing. In case you've never heard it before, here's what it sounds like when a glacier cracks. When these giant things start to chip and fall apart. This is happening right now, and at a rate we've never really seen before in the history of our species. As David said earlier, a large piece of the Western Antarctic ice sheet could flow into the sea in a single human being's lifetime. Thing is though, the science of studying glaciers up close, with state-of-the-art equipment and all manner of data collection, it's still very new, and that means two things. First, we don't have enough data to compare what the temperature, salinity, and depth of the ocean were 100 years ago to what they are today. That's because Thwaites wasn't discovered until 1940, and no data was collected until much later. The second thing these recent expeditions tell us, which comes as a result of not having enough historical data, is that there's a kind of uncertainty as to how exactly this is all going to play out.
0: The people I was with, before they would go to Antarctica. Everything they do is hypothesis-driven, so they've done an extraordinary amount of research. So just going there means that they know something's up, and they don't necessarily know what. That's why they go down there.
1: So, based on what's been collected so far, what is the glacial doomsday clock actually saying? To find out, we called a guy, a guy who was trying to predict exactly that.
3: My name is David Holland. I'm a professor of mathematics and environmental science at New York University.
1: David Holland grew up in Newfoundland, Canada, skating on frozen ponds and ice rinks. He wanted to be a pro hockey player.
3: Turned out I became a mathematician and scientist, but I ended up studying ice, so one way or another, my career is on the ice.
1: Now seems like a good time to explain what a glacier actually is. I mean, We tend to generally think of it as a giant chunk of ice. But the scientific explanation is actually that it's, well, it's a giant chunk of ice.
3: A glacier is formed when snow falls on the land and the snow accumulates. And during the summer, it does not melt. And the following year, more snow accumulates during the winter and it builds up. And so to me, that's the definition of a glacier.
1: David Holland was on the voyage to Thwaites with the other David we spoke to for this episode, the journalist David W. Brown. The expedition was part of Holland's research on how the Earth's ice sheets interact with ocean waters. He's been on many voyages to visit glaciers, and he still thinks there's so much more to learn.
3: We have very little understanding of how land ice works. It's in a remote place. It's far away, Greenland or Antarctica. We get to sample it very rarely at great cost and expense for a few people to go.
1: David is a numbers guy, and numbers aren't sentimental. He's also very much into his work, even though it can get pretty abstract, and sometimes veers on being kind of depressing. A lot of it involves building models, which are basically instructions and information you feed to a really complex computer algorithm, in the hopes that the algorithm can then spit out accurate predictions of where things are going to go.
3: On my iPhone that I'm looking at here now, there's an app for the weather, so I can check out the weather tomorrow. And it's a mathematical model that says, if you tell me what the weather is today, I have a set of equations that can tell you what it probably looks like tomorrow.
1: Now David wants to use the same technology, the one used to create the weather apps on our smartphones, to predict something much bigger.
3: To go beyond the weather and step into the climate, which means you have not only an atmosphere weather model, but an ocean weather model, and a land model, and a biosphere model, and a cryosphere model.
1: This is complicated stuff. And as you'd probably expect, it's also really hard to do. Maybe one day we'll have apps on our phones that will predict sea level rise, wildfires, and other disasters caused by climate change. But it's going to be a while. There's a ton of variables. And the thing that scientists are trying to decipher is not the next day's weather.
3: We're asking these climate models that are kind of rudimentary to tell us what things will look like in 100 years from now. If you notice, the weather only really lasts like a day or two or three, and then it changes. But the behavior of the ocean is like a thousand times slower, and a glacier may be a thousand times slower again.
1: There have been times in the distant past of this planet's four and a half billion year history when pretty well everything was covered with snow and ice. But right now we're in the middle of what's called an interglacial period were between ice ages. Historically, there's been a pretty consistent pattern of melt and freeze on this planet, mostly predicated on the position of the earth. That makes glaciers, in some ways, kind of like natural metronomes. Metronomes mark time for musicians through their oscillating motions and regular ticks. Glaciers similarly keep time, and in their movement, their growing and thinning, we see the patterns of the earth as a whole. That's what people like David Holland are studying.
3: The way glaciers are sitting around the world now in Antarctic and Greenland is they're, they're bathed in an ocean that's cold, so they're like happy glaciers. For some reason to do with changes in the wind of the atmosphere, warm water around Antarctica has crashed into Thwaites, and so that's why it's falling apart.
1: And the thing is, even though we're in the very early stages of a lot of this research, and there's a ton we don't know, There are also some pretty clear signs that the recurring patterns of the world, the things that have generally operated on the same geological frequency for millions of years, are starting to do something very, very different.
3: Right now we're breaking the model of the way the Earth works. Three decades ago, not a single person on Earth would have said to you that in our lifetime, the Arctic sea ice will change, that the glaciers on the land will change.
1: We should say here that sea ice is just what it sounds like. Frozen seawater that floats on the surface of the ocean.
3: But yet in the last three decades, one half of the Arctic sea ice has now disappeared in summer. And it's perhaps the largest change on the planet.
1: And here we get to the without part of this episode of without. Because once you start losing that ice, you create feedback loops. Which is another way of saying that warming does things to the planet that in turn accelerate the warming. It's a vicious cycle. Even with the limited data scientists have been able to collect from this region, we know that more ice used to keep the ocean cool. That's because air temperatures are rising around the world. Once the Arctic sea ice melts, more blue water is exposed to sunlight. That makes the water warmer and continues to melt the ice. It's a lot of science, I know, but bear with us.
3: So now we have this double whammy where the CO2 has increased the temperature, but the temperature's melted the ice, but the melted ice is replaced with an ocean that's now taking in more heat, and that's why some parts of the Arctic are warming like seven times faster than other parts of the planet.
1: A planet without glaciers would mean much, much higher sea levels. Like, catastrophically high. It would mean a lot of cities near the coast would become essentially uninhabitable. It would mean massive loss of farmland, threatening our species' ability to feed itself. So that's the scary part. But more than disaster scenarios, the science of studying just what glaciers are doing is much more populated by big old empty spaces. Things we just don't know.
2: The big question right now, I think, is (laughs) what is going on?
1: (laughs) That's Anna Wallen. At the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, Anna studies the physics of the ocean. She looks at currents, climate, heat transfer between ice and water, that sort of thing. And that means she spends a lot of time looking at glaciers.
2: Some of them are decreasing very rapidly. Some of them are actually growing. Why is that? And um, how does it work? And then that, of course, leads to something that's very interesting, and that is what can possibly happen here in the future,
1: like the two Davids we talked to in this episode, Anna's been to the Thwaites Glacier a couple of times in the past three years. Her first visit was in 2019.
2: It was quiet uh, around us, and uh, suddenly it appeared not so far from the ship. And that was an overwhelming experience, I think, to see it for the first time. We had all, all of us had studied these maps and looked at satellite data and tried to imagine in our heads what it would look like, and there it was.
1: Using satellites is the way Anna gets most of her data. The satellites have sensors that can see through the ice to measure size and thickness.
2: But then we also need to complement that with some data that shows us what does it look like underneath the ice. And that is harder, much, much trickier to get. You can either drill a hole through the ice and put sensors down. And that has been done, but not very often. One hole, as far as I'm aware, in this region.
1: That hole, which is 7,000 feet deep, took 20 years to complete. So instead, Anna's research team uses an underwater sea craft. It glides beneath the glacier to see how the ice has changed over the years.
2: So we get a map of the underside of the ice. It's changing quite rapidly and uh, it has the potential to affect future sea level rise if it continues to change as fast as it has.
1: Anna likes to say that some of these places where the glaciers are, particularly in Antarctica, well, we know less about these places than we do about the moon. On top of that, we're just starting to study them in depth at a time when they seem to be behaving in ways that break the normal patterns of the Earth. As such, what happens next is anything but certain.
2: This ice is clearly getting weaker and weaker by the month. It could be that something stabilizes the ice, but it could be that it gets into a runaway mode so that it retreats back. And that will be associated with some sea level rise.
1: The only way to truly find out what's happening with our glaciers is to go on more expeditions, to drop more torpedo-shaped sensors from planes into the water, and to use seacraft to collect more data from under the ice. After the break, we hear what a disappearing doomsday glacier could mean for the planet. We'll also learn which sense you lose completely down there in the Arctic. That's next.
2: How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. One of the more bizarre things about going to see the Thwaites Glacier, and there are a lot of bizarre things, is that for the most part, you basically lose one of your senses entirely.
2: There's no smell there's no smell of grass or rain. or It's no smell at all. So when you get back after two months at sea with no smell, suddenly you put foot on green grass. Everyone is just walking around smelling.
1: David W. Brown, the paratrooper-turned-journalist, he experienced something similar, albeit under slightly different circumstances.
0: I wasn't sure if alcohol was allowed on the ship. It turned out it most definitely was. I did sneak these bottles of wine on board and one was a Riesling and one was a Chardonnay. When we were on the ice for a few days, just as like a little celebration for a milestone that we'd passed, I opened up the Riesling and poured it for me and a few friends. It had the most pronounced aromas that I think i had ever encountered with a bottle of wine. But the reason is, there was literally nothing competing with it. The only thing there was to smell was that wine.
1: Just about everyone we spoke to who had been to this part of the world described their reaction to it as something like awe. It's sort of like when astronauts go into space. They take a look at the planet and come to see just how petty a lot of our everyday disputes and aggressions really are. There's a bigness and a wildness to the ends of the Earth. A complete rearranging of the prism through which one sees the world. Anna says her first visit to Antarctica, about 17 years ago, was mind-blowing.
2: It's really something that changes you. It's a a very desolate place, far away. It has a completely different climate than the rest of the world. At first, you can't understand what you're seeing. You see a big white thing. You're thinking constantly, is that a cloud? Is it ice? What is it I'm looking at? There are no people there at all. You know perfectly well every ship that's within miles.
1: Anna is already gearing up for her next trip to Thwaites this January when it will be summer in Antarctica.
2: This is the place where so much cold is stored if you calculate the energy that's the negative energy stored in that ice it's massive it influences Earth's climate quite substantially.
1: She hopes that we're going to find out a lot more information about the future of glaciers in the next few years. That's what keeps scientists going back to these remote cold, often deadly places.
2: It's tricky to work with scientists because scientists get so into the work. You know, we get like crazy. (laughs) We have to do this. We have to get the data. We have to get it. The consequences are there regardless. This is going to happen. The ice doesn't care whether we know about it or not. It feels good that this knowledge that we are gaining I think will be very useful for future.
1: The central question is once we do know Will we act? Or will it be too late? The Thwaites Glacier has become a kind of shorthand for what's happening to glaciers all over this planet. It's the most unstable piece of land ice on Earth. And if it's disturbed, the one least likely to return to some previous equilibrium. And if it does go, that could mean all kinds of consequences. A lot of our food is grown near the coast. A world without glaciers would mean our coastland would get inundated first by sea level rise. That's food shortages. That's displacement of people and wildlife. That's places like New York and San Francisco and New Orleans having to build giant barriers and seawalls. Or maybe not. No one can predict the consequences with absolute certainty. But the idea that there will be no consequences, if it ever was realistic, isn't anymore. In the meantime, people like David W. Brown, David Holland, and Anna Wallen will keep studying Thwaites and visiting the Arctic. In a way, the researchers' obsession with data, with cold hard facts, well, it serves as a kind of unintentional defense mechanism. If you can focus on numbers, on the science of it, that's less brain power to spend on freaking out, on coming up with disaster scenarios. Like Anna Wallen said, the ice doesn't care whether we know about it or not, but we should. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar al and it's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. This episode is produced by Abby Fentress Swanson, with editorial support from Emil Klein. Our associate producer is Kendra Hanna, with fact-checking by Fendel Fulton, and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners, and research is by Sarah Mathis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week.
0: I have now seen more penguins in my life than I've seen dogs and cats combined.
3: Hey, Bob.